Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. Hello and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and an editor for A Better Peace. Thanks for joining us today. On today's episode, we're bringing you part of our ongoing series on the emerging environment in the Indo-Pacific region. And this series has been produced in collaboration with the United States Military Academy at West Point's Department of Social Sciences as part of the 2019 Senior Conference. The Senior Conference provides a forum for distinguished scholars, practitioners, and government officials to engage in candid discussions on topics of national security importance. Senior Conference is made possible by the generous support of the Rupert S. Johnson Grand Strategy Program and the Association of Graduates, and War Room is proud to help continue this conversation online. Today's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Hornung, a political scientist at the RAND Corporation. He specializes in Japanese security and foreign policies, East Asian security issues, and U.S. foreign and defense policies in the Asia-Pacific region, including its alliances. And I've asked Jeffrey here to help us think about what the security of the Asia-Pacific region looks like from Tokyo. That is, to help us see the world from a Japanese rather than an American point of view. So thanks for joining me today, Jeffrey. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, so when we think about when we, Americans, think about security in the Asia-Pacific region, I think we tend to do so from an egocentric perspective, and that's understandable. Um, But today we're going to sort of flip the script, I guess, and imagine the region as seen from Japan. Um, So I'd like for you to start and briefly talk us through how we might see the world and security concerns more specifically if we were centered in Tokyo uh, from the perspective of the Japanese rather than looking out from Washington, D.C. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, in some ways, some of the ways that uh, Tokyo looks at security issues in the Indo-Pacific, it's not going to be that very different from the United States. Um, They have similar concerns regarding China, uh, North Korea, for instance. But I think you'll see that... um, Tokyo is hypersensitive on a lot of things, and and there there are some of these uh, security issues that are more in the extreme. For instance, China. Um, uh, Japan has been struggling with uh, Chinese incursions into its waters for some time, uh, and what you see Japan doing in reaction to that is building up a lot of its forces, a lot of its posture in the southwest area of its island chain to try to counter some of this activity, both gray zone activity and also military activity. Uh, And so, whereas in the United States, we tend to hear a lot of things about China, be it uh, cyber attacks or or sort of more of a grand strategy of China trying to push the U.S. out of the Indo-Pacific, Japan's dealing with China on a day-to-day basis in in, in a way that I don't think the United States is doing. Uh, in a very particular way about in, incursions into specific territorial sort of regional yes. questions. Yeah, correct. So you see, so where you have overlap with the United States, for instance, the South China Sea and a lot of freedom of navigation areas, Japan and the United States are lockstep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you actually look at 
specific, like tactical things that Japan is dealing with, where it has its warships. It, 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 they don't call them warships, but they have their maritime self-defense ships out. They have their Coast Guard ships out, and they're, they're watching the Chinese. They're countering the Chinese. The Coast Guard vessels are. Um, you have their aircraft scrambling against Chinese aircraft coming into their airspace. They're doing this on a daily basis um, in, in a variety of ways. And so um, the Japanese are very sensitive about what China's doing. And so when you see Chinese uh, military buildup, uh, defense budgets, uh, modernization programs, everything that China does, Japan looks at and says, okay, what are we going to do to counter this? To counter it. So if China is the sort of largest competitor, the, the, the country that looms largest in the Japanese security um, imagination, what are the other sort of maybe secondary concerns that Japan sees? And then we'll talk about some of them the more specifically. Well, the, the biggest secondary concern would be North Korea. And, and it's hard to say it's secondary in the sense that, um, you know, from a, from a standpoint of threat, North Korea has launched missiles over Japan and they've abducted citizens from the Japanese. But I think if you look at the Chinese threat uh, in terms of an existential long-term threat versus the North Korea being what a lot of Tokyo sees as a short term, it will be dealt with at some point, mm-hmm. but it could escalate very quickly. Um, they, they are dealing with North Korea as well, but they feel that that could be uh, handled. The difference where I think you see the U.S. and Japan in terms of their threat perceptions right now is when it comes to Russia. Um, Prime Minister Abe is trying to work with Putin, trying to resolve the territorial dispute that they have in the north, trying to get a peace treaty. Um, when you talk to Japanese policymakers and ask them where does Russia fit in their, in their threat perceptions, um, they say it's a declining power. It's, it's a third-tier uh, threat. It's right. not really there. Uh, understanding that Russia still does do incursions into their northern airspace. They still do. They have, they're, they're cognizant that Russia's building up its Pacific fleet, um, modernizing things up, up in, the, in Vladivostok. But they just don't see Russia in terms of the same lens that they see China. Sure. And I think, I mean, again, to compare it to the U.S., the I think the American perception of Russia is based almost entirely on a sort of UCOM yeah. European lens. And I, I we hear very relatively little sort of talk about Russia's interest in the in the Pacific, even though we know that right. we know that they're there. We know Russia is a is a Pacific power just as much as right. as anyone, um, given its geographic location and size. Um, but certainly, we've got sort of different lenses that we're that we're viewing. Who is Russia a threat to? And right. Russia seems more a threat to Eastern Europe than it does maybe to Japan. Right. Um, so if we think about, I think one of the other key um, security aspects of the Asia-Pacific region is the ja- the alliance between Japan mm-hmm. and the United States. Um, so, right, there's a, the Treaty of Mutual Cooperation mm-hmm. and Security. Um, what's the view of that from from Japan? How does Japan see that treaty and that alliance? For the Japanese, the alliance is first, middle, and end of everything that they do. Uh, you look at when they're defense planning, you look in terms of their strategic relationships, the U.S. is at the core of everything. And so um, even even if you look at some of the language that they use regarding Chinese incursions into their mm-hmm. territory, they always talk 
trying to get the United States to reaffirm Article 5 of the Security Treaty, which essentially sure. says that the U.S. will come to their defense. Um, so for the Japanese, the Security Treaty is the most important. Uh, it, it, it must hold in order for it their must hold. security arrangement and plan it must work, hold right? from the Japanese standpoint, because the Japanese forces, they don't call them the military, they call them the self-defense forces. They are responsible for the defense of Japan, the shield, whereas the U.S. is responsible as the sword or the spear mm-hmm. um, to any to counter any attack that, that really comes in. So you have this spear-shield relationship. And so um, in order for that relationship to work, you need the spear. And, and that comes through the security treaty. So... When Japan then is making security decisions and they're and they're thinking at at the strategic level, um, and that alliance is central and the threat from China is the, if you have those as, as your two sort of, mm-hmm. I guess, um, foundations for thinking about security, how does that affect um, sort of day to day decisions for the Japanese self defense forces and Japanese sort of security policy? Well, I think what you have is that the Japanese, as the threat with China increases, the relationship with the United States gets closer. So you see, for instance, the, the ground forces is a good example of this. Um, over the over the last decade, as the China threat has increased, as the China, uh, as the Japanese have really realized more and more that China is trying to establish a new normal in the Southwest Island chain, you see the ground self defense forces. Uh, establishing an amphibious rapid deployment brigade working very close with the US Marine Corps in ways that they never did before and and you although the maritime self defense forces and and the US Navy have had historically a very close relationship um, you see a lot more uh, interoperability uh, growing between the US and the Japanese forces as the Chinese mm-hmm. threat because the Japanese realize they cannot do this by themselves they need the United States and so these are things like we've seen increased exercises um, Japanese um, sort of training in the United States going to American schools things like that as, as part of that does Japan if we again if we if we center ourselves in Tokyo do is there a concern about the state of the alliance mm. right now? I would say that there, from my experience with, with visiting Japan and, and talking with people over there, there's, there's a concern that I haven't heard before. Uh, it's not so much the mill-mill relationship. People think that the mill-mill relationship is on a steady steady basis and it's not going to change. Um, they do like to have the reaffirmation that the United States is going to protect the you know, Senkakus mm-hmm. is, in, is included. Um, but you have a sense that the political relationship is something that's a little bit more volatile than it has in the past. Um, they've, they've been used to the United States always looking at Japan in a very steady state way that this is our alliance there's nothing shaking that and we're not asking more of japan we'd like japan to maybe maybe do a little bit more in its defense but we're not trying to shake the fundamentals of it but when you have questions about should the japan should the japanese increase the the amount that they're paying uh, to the united right. states should they buy more u.s goods things like that it starts to inject things that the japanese are not that comfortable with because those have been sort of off limits 
in terms they've been separate discussions they've been from separate the discussions and when those discussions have happened they've been largely private you've not had a for instance a president calling this out um, and putting a lot of undue pressure on the Japanese because the Japanese will remind you in the very first breath that they have a very large number of US forces forward based on Japan um, they pay for about 80% of those basing right. costs and so they'll remind that that's something they don't want to always do publicly but when when they get called out on something they will remind that and and try to say that we are we are doing our fair share doing our fair share um when we think about the region the indo-pacific is a is a pretty big neighborhood mm. to live in um and there's lots of security dynamics and security concerns so we've talked a little bit about china and north korea are there other countries in the region that Japan um, either feels threatened by or feels sort of closely aligned with in terms of their interests and how they're how they're understanding the, the neighborhood that, that they live right. in well I would say that the threat the answer the threat threatening countries first it really is China 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 mm-hmm. like they're uh, outside of North Korea it's 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 their strategic thinking largely revolves around China. But the other, the other part about countries that they feel close with or, or sort of, you know, feel a little bit more of a alliance, alliance feelings, although small A, not big A, um, that has been growing. You see the, the Japanese-Australian relationship growing in leaps and bounds where they have uh, acquisition cross-servicing agreements, mm-hmm. they have information-sharing agreements, they exercise um, the, the Australian forces when they train, they they admit that they they do learn things from the Japanese, especially uh, the maritime self-defense forces. Um, at the same time, Japan has been reaching out to India in ways that maybe the U.S. cannot. Um, you have a tradition of a, a Buddhist tradition. You have a non-alignment versus, or, and and Japan has a pacifist tradition, and so you have this commonality that has allowed the Indians and the Japanese to work together and get together and they've been exercising um, at a strategic level you have a lot of dialogues that that happen um, so the the India and Australian relationships have definitely be the the big pillars and this has sort of formed the foundation of the quad that we hear a lot about okay. in, in in the Indo-Pacific region but at a different level the Japanese have been building real substantial ties with the Philippines and with the Vietnamese as well, and and those relationships have been motivated largely by commonality of strategic threat, where they look north to China, and they f- with the so all of them feel threatened in some way, shape, or form right. by China, and therefore the the enemy of my the enemy of my, of my neighborhood. Or yeah, is maybe yeah. not enemy. <laughs> not, but, yeah, but, but they're but they're they're friendly because of a perceived common threat. I, yeah, I would say so. The Australia is different because Australia's been growing by itself. They've had operational um, mm-hmm. ties, like when when the Japanese sent uh, humanitarian forces to Iraq in the in the Iraq War. It was the Australian forces that guarded them, defended them, because at the time they had a lot of laws restricting their use of right. force. Um, and so you've had the Japanese and the Australians working together long before we've gotten to this point where there's this commonality on, on sort of a strategic threat. But with with some of these other countries like the Phils and with the Vietnamese, that is more recent and it is geared largely around a common threat. Okay. When we think about the nature of the threat that China might pose to Japan, 
Um, and if we think about, I th- it, that feels unlikely to change, right? Two years, 10 years, sort of 30 years out. Um, does the nature of the threat that Japan maybe sees in the short term, medium term, and long term change? Are there different, are they thinking differently about different time horizons? Well, I think what you see them, they, they, when you, when you stretch the time line out, from their standpoint, the nature of the threat gets worse because time is on China's side. Mm. They got the, they got the manpower, they got the money, they got, they just have quantity becomes its own quality at some point. The Japanese are suffering under demographic decline, their budgets are tight. And so as you start to go 10, 20, 30 years out into the future, you, you see Japan's competitive edge shrinking, and the Japanese know that. Um, they don't, unless China democratizes, which nobody assumes that in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. They're going with the assumption that it is what it is now and could potentially get worse. Um, they just see that China has its eyes set on uh, Taiwan. China has its eyes set on the Senkaku Islands, and that um, its southwest island chain area that that's the volatile area and no one's expecting in tokyo no one's expecting that china is going to invade japan mainland japan mm-hmm. kyushu but they do get a little worried about its activity in the southwest islands even okinawa they okay. they wonder what the, Ch- the chinese ultimate goal is so what if again if you're if you're thinking from from a japanese perspective what do you what do you do if the threat only only gets worse the further out you look. Does that change your strategic um, thinking? Does it change your strategic posture? Does it change mm. what you're doing right now? So I, it does. And I think that I, if I would give a report card of the Japanese, uh, what they've been doing in the last couple of years and moving forward, I, I, I'd give them a, a solid A for effort here because a lot of the motivations with developing closer strategic ties in the region, and it's not just the Phil's and the Vietnamese. I mean, it's all over. They have these different levels of relationships. A lot of it has been um, done under the recognition that strength comes in numbers. They're not looking for alliances like it had they have with the the americans mm-hmm. they're looking for strategic partners and and being able to have guardians of of the of global norms and global commons and um so they've been trying to strengthen the external environment maybe as a shaping uh, i don't know if they okay. they would use that terminology the japanese don't like to use the idea that they shape the region but I think that there's a uh, part of that there. But then when you look at what they're doing now, understanding that in the past they've been putting a lot of their resources into traditional domains, you know, traditional platforms like air, uh, um, you know, fighter jets and destroyers and subs and, and tanks. What they've been doing uh, in December, they released this. It's called the new uh, the National Defense Program Guidelines, which lays out the next ten years of where they the, where they plan on going with their defense, and then a five-year separate midterm defense plan of how they plan on uh, actually implementing that. And while they'll still have a lot of emphasis on the traditional domains, for the first time they have the seriousness about new domains. They're going into cyber. They're going into electromagnetic war- warfare. They're going into space, understanding that they have to get ahead of the curve. They, they're probably already behind the curve, mm-hmm. but they realize here's a weak spot. 
we have to try to do this because uh, if we don't do it now, we will. We're just shooting ourselves in the foot. So that they can be competitive with China, sort of in the in these arenas yes. that we know China's operating in. Um, where do you think Japan has the greatest, or is assuming the greatest risk in their security strategy? The the greatest risk, and this is something that it's hard to have a discussion with. It's hard to have this discussion because the, the limitation comes from politics. But the Japanese are very self-restraining in terms of what they can do. Constitutionally, mm-hmm. they limit. They, they do not, uh, they're not able to possess offensive warfare. Right. Or and these are, like, these are deeply held historical. Yes. There are reasons. <clears throat> there, there's reasons. And, and the U.S. does share a great deal of responsibility yeah. because they wrote the Constitution. Right. Um, after the war. And so you have this Article 9 of the Constitution that becomes the sort of the umbrella framework uh, under which all their policies and and defense decisions Mm -hmm. get made. And part of this uh, throughout the post-war era has been uh, it's a taboo. It's it's actually legally a violation to possess offensive capabilities. And they've actually stood up in the Diet or the, the Japanese parliament and said, this is aircraft carriers. This is long-range missiles. This is long-range bombers. These things are offensive capabilities. We cannot possess these. Um, and from the Japanese standpoint, that you know, understanding why that was said in the 40s and the 50s, mm-hmm. um, its neighbors were still very cautious about Japan, right. so I could understand that. But now you have over 70 years of peaceful, democratic Japan, civil... Um, civilian control is solid. It's not questioned. It's not wavering. The Japanese military are not going to rise up and overthrow uh, the the civilian government. And so for them to still constrain themselves like they do now, um, it's limiting for them because if they're up against a competitor like China or even North Korea, and they know that the Japanese have no ability to reach out and touch them and that they're just in a defensive mode, um, this puts Japan at a disadvantage because they they cannot counter uh, mm-hmm. anything. They have to just rely on the United States. Right. The sort of fundamental premises of deterrence. Right. Start to break down. Break down very if quickly you, if you can't uh, if you can't counter. Yes. Punch. But the thing that's really interesting is in these uh, new defense program guidelines that were released when they were talking about cyber, they actually used language in there about disruptive capabilities which they don't use offensive, mm-hmm. they don't say offensive, but they say that if they're attacked, they are developing disruptive capabilities. And that's, if you read between the it's lines maybe there. maybe on a line. That's probably a whole other <coughs> podcast. Yeah. About what, do, what do we mean by offensive cyber capability? <laughs> um, to, but for the Japanese, yeah. that's, that's huge. It's a big step. Do you, is, it, do you, is, is there any political movement away from these self-imposed constitutional constraints? No. A couple years ago, uh, when Abe first came into power, his party, mm-hmm. um, they had these debates about long-range strike capabilities, although they didn't call them that. They called them like enemy enemy base strike capability. I forget the exact Japanese for that, but they call them like enemy base. Um, and they, there was a debate actually in the late 50s by Prime Minister Hatoyama at the time. And he said that his cabinet said that it was theoretically legally possible for Japan to possess long-range strike capabilities if they were, if they were meant to strike at a missile site before they get 
struck because they said that the thinking so preemption of, would be preempt kind of yeah except they didn't they they the argument was japan should not have to sit and wait to die so that preemption would be defensive it's a defensive it, and this maneuver. is where the theoretically constitutional <laughs> argument comes because they're self-defense and so in 2000 i want to say 2014 time it was right after abe came in his party revived those arguments saying we have North Korea, we have China, we need to think about long-range strike capabilities, mm -hmm. not using that word, of course. Um, and they revived it saying it's theoretically possible, legally possible, but then it didn't go anywhere. And it just sort of went off. Right. And Abe never pushed it. You have in the new defense, the National Defense Program Guidelines, standoff capabilities, missile capabilities. Um, it's not clear yet what specifically that's going to be but um these aren't going to be the you know the ability from mainland japan striking china it's more going to be um having missile batteries on some of these smaller southwest mm -hmm. islands and maybe going like 500 kilometers you or could, something that could project a little yeah. bit all right so to to close out if you were giving now advice to american policymakers, um what's the what's the thing that you wish they understood better about how Japan sees the world? That's a big question. <laughs> I mean, the big thing is that the Japanese are hypersensitive about their security. They don't all, the reason they're always asking for reaffirmation of the security treaty is that they're not sure because of the political vo uh, volatility right now in Washington, they're not always confident that the United States is going to come to their defense Mill mill, they'll say yes, but politically they don't know if the, the president or even other political leaders would pull the trigger. Really mean it. Yeah. And so there's, you know, I, I think there's a sense in Washington sometimes of saying like, oh, why did the Japanese want to hear this again? We need so much reassurance, right. right? But they need that because they're not always sure. And so I think, um, you know, if I was, if I, if I had the ear of, of leaders in Washington, I would remind them that Japan is our most capable ally in the region. They, you know, forward base about 50,000 of our troops, all services. Um, they're very willing to, to, to be there and help U.S. forces in the case of need in Japan, not fighting shoulder to shoulder. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but they, they, are, they feel sensitivities about certain things that I don't think are always perceived in Washington because it's so far away. We tend to think of, oh, North Korea can launch a missile and hit California. But pretty much all their arsenal can hit Japan. Right. And that's something... It's right there. It's right there. And they've done it. They've launched missiles over mm -hmm. Japan. And and so that's something that's not always appreciated. Yeah. That it doesn't feel hypothetical. It doesn't feel... It's real. ...distant. Very good. So on that note, uh, we'll be signing off for A Better Peace. Jeffrey, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.